Good morning. Good morning. My name's Philip. I haven't met you before. I'm Philip. I'm one of the leaders here, part of Simon's team. Great to see you. I hope you have a fantastic morning with us. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're in Acts chapter 5. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. And if you are new, let me just quickly catch you up on the series of talks that we're in, looking at the book of Acts. And we've seen in the book of Acts that the first church, the first Christian church, has exploded onto the scene in first century Jerusalem. We've seen that this church has been marked by a number of things. It's marked by amazing power. It's marked by amazing growth. It's marked, as we heard last week, by amazing generosity. It's marked by opposition as well, including from the inside, as we're about to see. So whilst you're turning to Acts chapter 5, let me pray. I'm going to ask for God's help, and then we will get going. Lord God, we thank you for being with us this morning. We thank you for catching us up in the joy and the privilege and the adventure of worshipping you and following you and trusting you. God, we thank you that what we are about to read is, is your word. It's you speaking to us today. And I pray, God, that you would be our teacher. Please help me to be clear and true and help us to receive your truth, that we might be more and more like you. Amen. So, Acts chapter 5. I'm actually going to start from the end of Acts chapter 4, which is the passage that Simon taught on last week, because it gives some important context to what I'm about to read. So I'm going to start from verse 36 in Acts chapter 4, which is page 912, if you're using our church Bibles. And then it'll get interesting. (laughs) Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid that at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And and after it was sold, wasn't it still at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You haven't lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico outside the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, 
It's a gift day. And <laughs> it will not have escaped your notice that God appears to be killing people who don't give all their money to the church. There are young men poised at the door, ready to carry you out. End of sermon. Uh, there's a bit of fear going around in the first church, isn't there? In the first century Jerusalem. Fear is a kind of funny thing, isn't it? Fear is an odd little thing. I've got a particular fear at the moment. The England uh, football team got knocked out of the group stages of the World Cup, didn't they? The England cricket team got knocked out of the group stages of the World Cup. The England rugby team could get knocked out of the group stages of the World Cup. For me, this is a genuine fear that is living in my life. There are some curious fears, or even more curious than that. Do you know what oikophobia is? Being scared of your toaster. I am reliably informed. Fear is a very strange thing. Um, and I said before that a church in Jerusalem is marked by a number of things. Amazing power. It's marked by incredible growth. It's gone through the thousands very quickly. As Simon talked so helpfully last week, it's marked by incredible generosity. As you've already heard in previous weeks, it's also marked by opposition. And this week we can see it's marked by something else. It's marked by a fear of God. Ananias and Sapphira, however, are marked not by a fear of God, but by a fear of man. And so I guess my first question for you this morning is, what marks you out this morning? What marks you out this morning? A fear of God or a fear of man? You see, the Bible's very clear, isn't it? The Bible's very clear that to fear God is actually healthy. It's for human flourishing and joy, but to fear man, frankly, is foolishness because it causes disappointment and destruction, ultimately. And so I want to look with you at three points that I think all hang off this issue of what it is to fear God and not man. First of all, I want to distinguish between unhealthy and healthy fear. We'll do that quite quickly. Second of all, why is, it, why is the fear of man an, an unhealthy fear? And how do we get free of it? And thirdly, why is the fear of God a healthy fear, and how do we acquire it? So if you're taking notes, you can get yourself set up. So, number one, what is unhealthy fear and what is healthy fear? Is there a difference? Because I guess, for most of us, we would probably associate the word fear as a negative concept, wouldn't we? We would think fear is something to be avoided, something to be defeated, it's not something to be particularly anticipated or pursued. Franklin Roosevelt, the famous American president in 1932, kind of hit the nail on the head with this aspect when he said, as he was addressing the American people in the midst of an economic depression, he said to them very, very famously, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And he was trying to motivate them out of fearing economic problems and actually into spending and getting the economic wheels turning again. He knew that fear was a negative thing. Defeat that, and the economy of America starts to move again. And I think for many of us, we would kind of chime with that very easily, that fear is a negative thing. It's to be defeated, avoided. But I would put it to you just initially this morning, that fear can be a healthy thing. Fear can be a healthy thing. I think actually all of us do understand that instinctively. Whatever our background is, wherever we're here this morning, I think all of us would actually realise, if we think about it, that fear can be a healthy thing. Just one little example. Uh, I've got three little nephews, uh, Josh, Sam and Noah. They live in Brussels. And uh, last year we went to the zoo. 
which was uh, great fun, as you can imagine. They are now eight, six, and two. So I guess they were seven, five, and one. And they were having a great time at the zoo, as you do, and I was having a great time with them. And for Josh, the oldest one, the pinnacle of the whole uh, zoo trip was to see the lions. So excited about seeing the lions. Not too fast about pranking anything else other than can we get to the lions. And sure enough, we got to the lions and a huge kind of area, well, quite big area. They had to move around them, but I guess effectively a cage. And there he was with his hands pressed up against the cage, just transfixed. And this lion came closer and closer and he was absolutely transfixed. And this incredible beast kind of padded its way towards him. I looked down again and he didn't have his hands flat against the cage, he had his little seven-year-old fingers poking through the cage. I think they're a bit less bothered about health and safety in Brussels than they are uh, over here. Maybe that EU directive hasn't, uh, hasn't uh, done, it, done its job over there. But he had his fingers like poking through these ideal seven-year-old finger cage gaps. And then he caught my face and realised that I was a little bit concerned. And his face went whoosh, white with fear. Because he suddenly realised, <gasps> my fingers are in the lion's den. And he pulled them out straight away. Now, was I sorry that he felt fear about the lion? Was I thinking, oh, really, that's really unfortunate that you're so fit? No! I was really glad that he felt fear of the lion. And they acted upon it. And he didn't just leave his fingers in there as lion bait during feeding time, which is what it was. I was really happy that he felt fear. And the point, I guess, is pretty simple. If you fear the right thing, it's good for you. You avoid foolishness. You avoid harm. So really, therefore, surely the key is to not to avoid fear, but to fear rightly. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you'll know that we're invited, because of Jesus and through Jesus, to be friends, get this, friends with the God of the universe, and therefore into a relationship with him, in which, as a result of that fact, we're to fear nothing at all. That's part of our privilege, part of the invitation of coming into friendship with God through faith in Christ. We're not called or any need to fear financial difficulty, any kind of circumstances, even poor health. There's no fear of those things for us in Christ. But we're not called to fear nothing at all. Called to fear nothing at all except God. And that's the point this morning. Ananias and Sapphira don't fear God. They do fear, but they fear wrongly. Their fear is a fear of man. And point two, why is the fear of man unhealthy? And how do we get free of it? Let's be clear. Ananias and Sapphira's sin, and sin is just a Bible word for our thoughts and actions that are contrary to the perfect character and purposes of God. Ananias' sin is not... Very important to understand this on a gift day, is not a failure to give all their money to the church. So we all just breathe as we just hear that confirmation of that truth. That is not their sin. There was no compulsion, no compulsion to give. Look at verse 4, chapter 5. What does Peter say to Ananias? He says, while it, meaning Ananias' property, while it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? He's saying, Ananias, the, the property was yours. And when you sold the property, the money from the property's proceeds was yours. There was no compulsion to give. That is not his sin. 
His sin was A, one of hypocrisy, pretending to be more generous than he was, and B, lying. Lying to God. Again, verse 4, Peter says, You haven't lied to me. You've lied to God. His sin was one of hypocrisy and one of lying. But what was behind it? What was behind it? So often I think as Christians we can, just, we can just see the sin. We can just want to defeat the sin. But what's behind it? There's always something, there's always a root that causes behavior, actions, thoughts that are contrary to the perfect plans and character of God. What had taken root in Ananias' heart was this. Fear. Fear had taken root in his heart. Not a fear of God, but a fear of man. You see, Ananias, I think, wants to appear generous in the eyes of the church. That seems to be his desire, to appear as though he's a radically generous man in the church. He brings his money publicly, gives it to the leaders. So maybe Ananias has spotted Barnabas, who we just read about at the beginning, we heard about last week. This guy who also sold his property and gave all his money to the church. Maybe Ananias has seen the the praise and the the thanks and the honour, perhaps, that was bestowed upon Barnabas. And that began to get into his heart. Maybe perhaps he, was, he really wanted the approval of the leaders, of Peter and the other apostles. And this would be a way to achieve that. Either way, Ananias is motivated by a very simple thought. And one, I think, that I certainly experience, and I would imagine some of you do as well. What will people think? It's the fear of man. What will people think? Second question, how much of what you do is motivated by that thought? What will people think? Four very simple words. And if, we become to, if that becomes our primary fear, my goodness, it starts to change our motivations and our desires and our decisions. And it seems to me that a fear of man can reveal itself in two ways. And I think we see that with Ananias. The first way the fear of man can kind of manifest itself, if you like, is that we become afraid to be honest and vulnerable in front of others. You see, I think one of the part of the tragedy of Ananias' story, and it's a tragic story, is that he didn't acknowledge his weaknesses. And by that I mean, surely at some point he would have begun to diagnose, excuse me, what was happening in his heart. As I've been studying this through the last week or so, I've just been kind of freshly struck by the tragedy of the fact that he didn't go to God and say, God, I haven't got a generous heart. I don't want to give. I don't want to please you. It's not there. I kind of wish, I too wish he'd done that. And I wish something else. Given this guy was a believer and part of the church, I wish he'd got alongside other believers and said, guys, it's just not in a good place. I know that the church is characterized by generosity and nobody's in any needs and it's extraordinary and God's doing something amongst us, but it's just not there. I don't have it. And do you know what, guys? If I'm really honest, my temptation is just to, is to get the, the approval and the praise of man, not the approval of God. Can you stand with me as I confess my sin to you? Can, we, can you pray for me as I receive the forgiveness and sanctification and healing of God? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And I think for us, surely church needs to be a place where that takes place. You see, let me just poke a little harder. We can all 
sing the songs, can't we? We can all attend the meetings. We can all sculpt that perfect Facebook profile. We can all kind of eliminate the obvious public sins. We can even give financially on a gift day like this. But actually, if we're doing those things to mask struggle and doubt and temptation, it's potentially fatal. Not I'm suggesting fatal in the sense of we get struck down by God, but it's fatal for our Christian walk, for our discipleship following of Jesus. That's why life groups are so key in our church. If a life group is anything, it has to be a place of honesty, surely. Why would we just rock up and just give the right answer and leave again, having not been changed? One of the things I love about my life group that I uh, lead is that people are honest. They say. Like, they say things like, I know what the right answer is, but do you know what? This is kind of where I'm at at the moment. And we can get to work with that. We can help each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, ask good questions later on. Life groups have to be a place where we can be honest about struggles, about doubts. So first of all, the fear of man can manifest itself in that we are nervous and scared of revealing our weaknesses. We create a veneer. And Ananias and Sapphira pretended to be these wonderfully generous people. The second way that the fear of man can manifest itself is that we desire the praise of others. We desire the praise of others. Um, an extraordinary turn of events. I seem to have found myself watching X Factor of late, which... Frankly, I never anticipated it was going to happen. And it seems to me that X Factor is quite a good demonstration of the cultural phenomenon of our desire for the praise of man. They're very skillful, talented people, but you can almost see the subtitles on the bottom of the screen, can't you? Saying, as, as the judges turn around, it's, please approve me, please praise me, please count my skill, my contribution, worthy of value, please. You can almost see the subtitles on the screen. The praise of man is such a lure. Most international sportsmen, if they were honest, would say the lure of the praise of the media and of crowds and of audience is so powerful. That's why some sportsmen go off the rails afterwards. Because they're anonymous suddenly. No praise of man. Identity gone. And it can be the same in church life too, to a degree. Now hear me. I'm not saying that it is wrong to enjoy the encouragement and praise of fellow believers. I'm not saying that. The Bible is very clear. We're called to encourage one another. Simon and I received an email just last week from somebody in the church, and it was just encouraging. Thank you for this. Well done for that. Keep going with this. So good for the heart. Really good. Not wrong to enjoy the encouragement of one another. But if you love the praise of others. And by that I mean if it draws you, if it entices you, and if it affects your motivations and decisions, that's when unhealthy, that can be unhealthy. If it's the reason you sing the songs, because I need the person next to me to know that I'm a, I'm a worshipper. If it's the reason you attend the meetings, because I need the leaders to think that I'm a Christian. If it's the reason that you avoid the public external sins to be thought of as holy and righteous, if it's the reason that you give financially today, it's potentially lethal. A fear of man will never, ever sustain those things. It will never sustain those things. It doesn't provide joy. It's fickle. 
Because, of course, when we then fail to earn the praise of the man or the woman that we so yearn for, everything else comes crumbling down. If that's the point, and we fail to achieve the point, everything comes crumbling down. John Piper, who's a, a church leader and writer and speaker in America, he said this, If you love the praise of man, your love for truth dissolves. If you love the praise of man, your love for truth dissolves. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. What do they love? The praise of man. What happens? They lie. Truth dissolves. Jesus said it pretty bluntly. He often spoke bluntly, Jesus. And he was talking to some Jewish religious leaders. And he said this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's saying, you're far more interested in the praise of man than the praise of God. So no wonder you miss it when God's at work among you. Do you know what it is to be controlled or influenced even by a fear of man? Either because you fear acknowledging weaknesses, doubts, struggles and vulnerabilities, or because the praise of men and women is a lure and it's a dominant force. It's a bit like an idol, something you've set up in place of God. Let's be clear. If, if the fear of man is the dominant thing, it will not bring joy. It won't bring satisfaction. Those are the things that God built us for. He built us to know satisfaction in him, joy in him. You put it in a fear of man, it will crumble. I used to play, or I still do play a bit of sport. I used to play a bit more sport back in the day. Uh, not to any great level, but just kind of bits and pieces. And the desire for the praise of those around me, if I'm honest, was my, probably my driving force to get acknowledgement. Sportsmen often, they look confident and often very, very insecure people. Because they're relying upon the praise and the approval. Everything's based upon your performance. When you fail, it's very public. Everybody sees it. I've known what it is to kind of base chunks of my life upon trying to earn the praise of man. And I found it dissatisfying. I found it's led to disappointment. I know this, if you're not a Christian this morning. We love you, so we say the following. If you base your life upon trying to appease mankind, including yourself, if that's the, the focal point of your life, it will disappoint you utterly and it will lead to destruction. It's an ugly thing, isn't it? How do we get free of it? How do we get free of it? This gospel is supposed to be good news. It's called the good news. John Bloom, an American writer, said this. Learning to fear the one right thing frees us from the tyranny of fearing a myriad of wrong things. What he's saying is this, rather strangely. The solution to fear is fear. The solution to fear is fear. So third and final point, why is the fear of God, therefore, healthy? Why is fearing God, why is the one source, focal point of fear, why is that healthy and how do I acquire it? Because this is the answer. This is how we get free of a fear of man. This is how we break free of what is only going to be for disappointment and destruction. It's to fear God and nothing else. How do I acquire it? What does it mean? Philippians 2 verse 12 says this, Work out your salvation with joy and peace. Ooh. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that says. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for. We don't work for our salvation. We work it out. We outwork it. We live out the consequences of it. And Paul says to do that with a sense of fear and trembling. Now some of you at this point are probably still kind of wrestling here a bit because fear is a negative emotion for you. The consequences of fear have hurt you. Your own responses to fear have hurt or damaged others. But kind of stay with me. Let's see what God wants to say because there is one true, appropriate, reliable focal point and source of fear. And his name's God. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it. Let's emphasize that. It's a gift of grace, isn't it? Received through faith. And let's be honest, we're always going to preach grace here at King's Church. I think by God's grace, we have always preached grace here at King's Church. And we will continue to do so. Glorious, unearned, unmerited grace. The grace of God demonstrated spectacularly on the cross. We're going to keep preaching it. Saved by grace and saved to live by grace. Saved to keep staying in grace, enjoying grace, full of grace. New grace every morning. But... We need to live by grace with an attitude of fear and trembling. Rightly trembling before God is appropriate. It reflects who he is and what the gospel is. I want to come into the home straight with three uh, illustrations to try and help you see that it is an appropriate dynamic to outwork the gift of grace with a sense of fear and trembling. Um, there's a rather wonderful young lady in my life at the moment. Uh, in fact, there's a little um, smiley emoticon on my notes here, which I never, ever imagined would ever, ever cross the lights of my printer. It's a shameful, shameful thing. And uh, the other day, I was speaking to a rather bemused friend of mine and explaining to him that, that uh, my girlfriend and I were not sleeping together, which was fairly baffling news for him, even though I think he's been aware of that concept for a while now. And so if you're, if you're dating, this is how we do things. We kind of cuddle, we, we hug, we kiss on the cheek, and that's our lot. That's, what we, that's kind of how we are doing our relationship at the moment. Why? Was my friend's effective response, although it was rather blunder than that. It's because we love God. And we actually love his purposes for sex. We know that he's given it as a gift to be enjoyed within the covenantal, faithful, permanent commitment of marriage. That's what it's for. And when it's unwrapped in those circumstances, it reflects the wonder and the beauty of God. That plan, we believe, is God's best plan for those who are married and those who are not. And we fall into the latter category. So we make those decisions based upon a love for God and a love for his commandments. But, maybe it's just me, but my love for God wanes. It's not consistent. His is consistent for me, but my love for him waxes and wanes. It goes up and down. I don't always feel a desire for God. I'm not perfected in my love for God yet. That's a process that he's taking me on by grace. So there are times when I don't particularly feel a love for God, particularly with regards to this, this aspect of his purposes and plans. I don't feel like obeying it. I feel like disobeying it a lot. But at that point, it's really helpful to have a fear of God. When my love for God dwindles and starts to do this, it's helpful if my fear of him does that. You see how it works? 
This is our, probably our primary, dominant privilege to, to love him, but our love for him fails, it's inconsistent. Maybe it's just me, because none of you are nodding your head at this point. When that happens, it's appropriate for a fear of God to rise up. She is a daughter of the God of the universe. I'm not going to trifle with that. I'm appropriately scared of God at the thought of trifling with his daughter and his plans for her purity. It's appropriate when we reflect on the fact God's made us both children and it's cost him so much. It's not cheap grace, it's expensive grace. Expensive grace, the blood of God himself spilling out upon the cross. Costly grace that brought me into a relationship and her into a relationship, not primarily with each other, but primarily with him. And it cost him so much. I want to tremble at that. Do you tremble at the cost of grace? Do you tremble at the nature of God? Second illustration, which I steal from John Piper as well. I want you to go to somewhere in your mind's eye. I want you to go to a huge Arctic glacier. Huge Arctic glacier. You there? And a terrible storm begins to blow. This is a fierce, icy storm. Snow, sleet, ice is blowing horizontally across. The wind is deafening. It's absolutely terrifying. The temperature is plummeting. It is terrifying. And you fear for your life. In fact, you know this thing is going to sweep you off the glacier to destruction. Guaranteed. No way you can survive this storm. And you can barely see like more than six inches in front of your face. Such is the horror and the terror and the purity of this thing. And then you glance to your left. There's a crevice. There's a crevice in the ice. There's a little cave in the side of the mountain. And you just crawl into it and you hide into it and you shelter there. And you're totally, totally safe. But you watch this terrifying thing go past. You watch this awe-inspiring, utterly destructive force sweeping past your face. And you watch it with a sense of terrified joy. That is scary. And I've been rescued from that. John Piper says this about that illustration. So stay, that, stay in that image in your mind's eye. He says, at first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. Did you feel that? But then you found a refuge. And you gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by the love of God. Final example. Then we'll close. Remember my little nephew Josh poking his fingers through the, the cage with the lions? The lion at the zoo? I think the lion is a wonderful image to finish on. C.S. Lewis knew exactly the profound decision he was making when he chose to portray the character Aslan in the Narnia stories. 
He knew he was portraying something profoundly significant about the nature of God when he chose Aslan. And if you know the Narnia stories, you'll know that famous scene where little Lucy, upon hearing about this legendary lion who was returning to reclaim the land for himself and to defeat evil, little Lucy says nervously to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? You said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis got it. He understood something profound. God is not a benevolent grandfather in the sky. Just like cheerfully dishing out sweeties and turning a blind eye to things that he can't be bothered with or can't deal with. He's a lion. The Bible calls Jesus the Lion of Judah. You don't trifle with a lion. You fear a lion. You never trifle with a lion. This lion is good, perfect, kind, merciful, strong, powerful, dependent, reliable, consistent, but he is not to be trifled with. He is not to be approached with a, with a casual lack of regard for his holiness. C.S. Lewis understood that. Do you? If you're not a Christian, do you understand that God is a lion? It's not to be trifled with. His anger against sin is like it's a, or that the storm, the snowstorm, is a tiny picture of the ferocity of the, and the purity of his hatred against sin. And it sweeps through. And the only way you can be rescued from the results of that is that little crevice called Jesus Christ. And you hide in there and it sweeps past. And if you don't, it takes you with you for eternity. But there's a crevice. There's a cave. We hide in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. Guarantee safety and security. But God doesn't get any less fearsome as a result. You just observe it from a position of guaranteed safety. Is that how you live your Christian life? Is that how you've observed God as you've investigated God? A storm. A lion. I wonder if I could invite Keith and the guys back up as we consider our response I would defy you not to be responding in some way. Final little story perhaps, again with Aslan and Narnia. Do you remember that scene where Aslan is faced with the witch and all her wickedness and evil plans and purposes? And I won't go into the story, but there's a moment where she tries to answer back at him, where she tries to defy him. And does Aslan come up to her? And say, we could discuss this some more maybe. Or, I see where you're coming from. He lets out this terrifying roar. And two things happen. Evil shrinks. She flees. And those that are on his side, their chest goes out, their shoulders go back. He's our king. He's on our side. We're with him. He's scary. But we're on his team. He's our king. He's our leader. And we go behind him. Always slightly trembling as to what he might do, but guaranteed as to our safety, security, identity. It's all in him. It's the nature of being a Christian. And look at the consequences of a church that fears God. We haven't really touched on it yet, but verses 12 and 16. 
What's the church like when it fears and trembles before the power of God? Do you read it earlier on? Signs and wonders breaking out, miracles everywhere, people being healed. Some people really scared of God and they run away. Other people so attracted by the idea of safety and security him and they run to the church and it grows. A church that understands what it is to fear and tremble before God will see his power unleashed, sometimes in ways we don't understand. Because he's God, he's the creator of the universe and I'm not. So by definition, he does stuff that I wouldn't do, like send his own son to sacrifice for you and I. I wouldn't do that. He does. It's the nature of God. Why don't we stand and we'll sing. I have no idea what we're going to sing, but I trust my good friend Keith to uh, take us to a good place and enjoy worshipping God. Just one practical thing, if you want to give, (laughs) I hope you'll do so from a position of reverence and awe, but with a cheerful, joyful, generous heart, because you've been privileged with joining in with the purposes of the Lion of Judah. The stewards will give you a song to enjoy God, to think, and at the beginning of the second song, they'll come around and they're offering baskets if you want to give that way. Please do fill in the forms, whether you give online or not. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to personally do what I've been doing all week and ask for your forgiveness for the times when I've just casually approached you and not treated you as you really are. Massive, enormous, eternal, totally other, holy, separate. But we thank you, God, that even though we will never approach you with a casual irregard, we do approach you with confidence because we've been hidden in Christ. We were going to be appropriately swept away from pure, appropriate judgment for our decisions to worship ourselves and others. And you rescued us, Jesus. You beckoned us in to that cave and crevice. And you gave us safety, security. And Jesus, we ask you, would we go about our discipleship of you and following of you and enjoying of you and worshipping of you? Would we outwork our salvation with fear and trembling? You are worthy, God. Amen.